Hello and welcome to the 2020 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 9, the Tuscan Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton claimed his 90th F1 victory, but the sport's first visit to Mugello didn't disappoint, serving up a chaotic Grand Prix of thrills and spills. The race was delicately poised between one and two stops between Mercedes and Red Bull Racing, but two red flag interruptions became the dominant strategic element, and reaction at the stoppages and the fan favourite standing restarts proved pivotal to the result. To analyse the race, I'm joined by ESPN's Nate Saunders. Nate, how are you? Hey, mate. Yeah, I'm great, thanks. How, how are you doing? Good. I'm feeling, I think, more energised than I expected after this race, I've got to say. It was better than I think forecasts were. You're sounding pretty chipper for someone who's just been up three <laughs> nights running, three weeks running at stupid hours to watch racing. So um, I'm pretty impressed with that. The race had to go for two and a half hours through the night. Yeah, couldn't run to time, had to go for extra time. But I think Mugello saw Monzo and was like, all right, we see your stoppage and we're going to raise you another one. I've got to prepare myself for Imola then later in the year if this is the trend for Italian races. Yeah, I mean, that these things happen in threes, don't they? So, you know, we, we might just get a, a race where that just keeps getting stopped as well. Dare we say, Sochi might be exciting if it's races I mean, in threes. Let's not get carried away with that. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Look, we'll have to wait and see how it goes. I think Formula One, I've never heard the sport as unanimously excited to go to a racetrack as it was to arrive in Mugello, as far as I can tell. And I know friends who work in MotoGP, for example, were very keen to see how Formula 1 was going to go. Some of the riders of MotoGP, because they're not turning up here this year, were jealous that Formula 1 was racing at Mugello. Let's just set up the scene a little bit with this track first. Why were people so excited to turn up to this racetrack? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I mean, the first one being... The, the F1 calendar is very samey. You know, we, we see a lot of the same racetracks and the guys go back and you almost get into this position where, you know, you, let's say Spain is the great example. I know Spain probably isn't... Actually, Spain's probably not the best example because they test there as well, but it's a circuit where as of an hour into Friday practice, you, you're like, okay, these guys know this circuit like the back of their hand. They're all into a rhythm. Whereas here, the drivers were coming. A lot of them hadn't ever driven there before. Some of them had driven different, you know, F4 cars, etc. You know, a few years ago. So I think there was that excitement, and it's such a high-speed track. There's only six breaking breaking points on the circuit, you know, and so it's one of those tracks where finding a rhythm, especially for a qualifying lap, so important. And you're seeing some of those, those onboards were spectacular. You know, the what, what I liked about it was you could see clearly, especially in Friday practice, drivers were trying different things out. Um, but the the key of those two factors, those two things are important. But the key, and we saw it um, play a big role in in the weekend, is that it's a circuit that punishes even the smallest mistakes at a lot of places you know we saw drivers getting wide Norris having that crash in practice just from getting a little bit wide and out of shape and it was quite a nice contrast because we saw at Monza the parabolica has kind of just been mm. completely stripped away of all all of all of its kind of majesty of previous seasons because it's got that ridiculous runoff area now and the drivers are calling out for stuff like that to just be removed and say look put a gravel trap there so I liked Mugello. It felt like an old circuit, like with, with all of the old kind of quirks of old circuits and hopefully Imola is similar to that when we go back there um, in, a, you know, in, a, in, a, in a couple of weeks. Um, but it was great, wasn't it? Just hearing, because all the drivers were kind of in agreement, like, hey, this is great. And you don't often, like when they go to Sochi, we, we mentioned Sochi, like you never, they're not like, oh man, I, you know, three more sleeps to Sochi, you know, you never get, you never get that. <laughs> so I think it was quite nice. And, you know, I've always been a big advocate of there should be like a Joker Grand Prix every season where... It's just a new venue or a venue that drivers haven't been at for a long time. And I think it just mixes things up a bit. And even though there were concerns about the quality of the race because of 
could these cars overtake there? Just the fact that it was a new circuit and it was it was new, even visually it was just new. I think all of that added to it from a as a spectacle. So yeah, it was great, and um, I think the drivers were uh, kind of quietly confident it wouldn't be as bad as we feared it would be, and that turned out to be. That turned out to be right, didn't it? I think I, I, they were sort of watching, and a couple of them referenced the idea that the junior categories were having some quite good racing over the course of the weekend. And I do like that as a barometer because if the racing in the junior categories is bad, it's usually a bad sign. But if it's too good, it's also a bad sign because all the F1 drivers are like, oh, this looks like a pretty risky... I remember Azerbaijan the I was first say. year was... Yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. nuts with the junior categories and all the F1 drivers are like, whoa, it's going to be too much. Yeah. But then, you know, they eased into it. Now it's an okay Grand Prix. Well, because I remember that because we were all like, oh my God, this this is going to be like the greatest race of all time. I was like, I was like, right, you know, hold the front page. <laughs> you know, we've got to, like, we're, we're going to have the greatest race. For, and it was like, just like, awful. it was like the first yeah. Baku race, wasn't it? It was like, this is, this is awful. <laughs> like, yeah, so you're, you're right. It is funny because I was worried about that with, with the Mugello support races. Mm. I was like, okay, these have been very good. Yeah. So I think maybe the drivers will just, maybe the drivers just, <laughs> going to be like okay i'm going to be as safe as i can so luckily that didn't happen this is and i feel like it, this is one of the few uh, occasions that people can really get a grasp of what this means in formula one because it is overused but it was an old school venue for a lot of the reasons you kind of pointed out there there but a couple as well that really had a notable impact on the way racing took place here and part of it was that as opposed to let's say the very smooth surfaces we normally get at new tracks this was an older surface like a well-used rough surface the gravel played a big role it wasn't especially wide it wasn't too narrow but it wasn't an especially wide track that sort of gives you the impression that it's made to be like well this is where the overtaking happens uh and further to that as well i think and this was something uh, that carlos Sainz, i think kind of pointed out was that because of the undulating nature of this circuit, it was also cambered for racing, which is something we don't really talk about in Formula 1. But increasingly on new circuits, we have this negative camber where the road slopes away from the corner to try and make mistakes. But this was all about corners that kind of promoted different lines, which I feel like never happens in Formula 1. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and Turn one's a great example mm. of those different lines. You know, we saw that being a really good overtaking spot. And I, I love Turn 1 for a, you know, for a place where... If a driver is ballsy enough, they can go around yeah. the outside like we saw Alex Albon do on Ricardo. And you're right, yeah. I think that that was that was something I heard a lot of the drivers saying as well. And um, it kind of it's funny, isn't it? Because like you say, the philosophy of modern circuits that are being made for F1 races seems to be the opposite <laughs> to what Mugello is. So hopefully, hopefully Mugello kind of and we'll see how Portimao and Imola and and stuff you know go down later in the year. But maybe this will be enough just to kind of maybe tweak that philosophy a little bit and. Because, like you say, it, it 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 ran completely contrary to what we what we're used to seeing. Hopefully, this is you know maybe becomes a bit of a rule book for the way we approach racing. But maybe we should also shouldn't get too excited about Formula One. We've got to got to have the good races and then just go back to the standard. Yeah, don't forget we do have. I don't want to keep <laughs> dumping on Sochi, but like you know, I always get really worried about getting super excited then going to Sochi because it's just not. It never really leaves me feeling that excited afterwards. <laughs> Look, if we talk it down enough, it could be great. So maybe we need to continue. This is also what I'm trying to do. I've, for years, I've been trying to talk it down. Like, well, one day it's going to yeah. produce the greatest race of yeah. all time. I'm just waiting for it, yeah. you know, but it hasn't happened yet. Could be 2020. If it's going to happen, it's going to be 2020. Uh, this being a bit of a joke around, and I do like that idea about this calendar because we've got a couple of essentially new races, let's say, uh, even if they're all strictly speaking new circuits or even new to Formula One uh, on this calendar. And I wonder how much of a role that maybe played in, from the start of this weekend, Valtteri Bottas looking like he had quite a good handle on this relative to Lewis Hamilton. In fact, right up until the end of Q1, he was the quicker Mercedes driver and was in with a shout for pole, missed out by less than a tenth of a second. Is that 
something we should read into this in terms of the way that ultimately played out through the rest of the weekend as well. Is it that Bottas is better at adapting or just suited this circuit somehow naturally? Yeah, I found that fascinating because um, you're right. You know, it, it, it was it, it looked like a Bottas track all weekend and, t- and then it was Q3 was the first lap. Mm was when Hamilton got ahead and then obviously there was that um the yellow flag which stopped Bottas improving on the second run and it's really it's 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 curious you know I I have to admit I I didn't look fully into their background of who had raced there and who hadn't I know Lewis hadn't but I don't know if Bottas had but I don't think that makes a huge difference really when you're talking Mm. about different cars and years before so it is interesting and I do wonder whether maybe it takes Lewis a bit of time to to get into that groove but also I I think Lewis sometimes you know he pulls out he pulls out performance when he needs to, and we saw that in qualifying. So maybe part of his was, you know, part of the lack of pace he had is him learning the circuit in a different way. And then when he needed to, he kind of pulled it all together. But that said, Bottas did seem to have the edge on him at points in the race as well, especially at the in the opening segment, which the opening stint, which I know we'll talk about talk about soon. But uh, maybe maybe Bottas needs twenty races at completely new venues and then we'll get a super close championship <laughs> maybe that's the key to saving 2021 just or, or 20 races at Mugello that might <laughs> maybe that'd get maybe that'd get well worn too quick but yeah that I, I'm clutching at straws for Bottas now we need the Bottas breakaway series at this point I think for him to win it yeah that sounds like a hashtag doesn't it clutching at straws for Bottas <laughs> <laughs> it's so look someone's got to start it someone has to start that one this was in almost an entire weekend sense particularly the race and let's sort of move on to that now because we know lewis hamilton did snatch pole from bottas and we'll cover off the lead the two leaders here first before looking at the race a bit more broadly but almost was a microcosm i feel like of bottas's season because realistically he has not been this year very far off hamilton in terms of ultimate pace there have been some races where he has faded but normally in qualifying the gap has been quite small and even in the race he's normally been close but never with that sort of decisive pace advantage to to make a move let's say and this race is very much the same because he got pipped at pole then did manage to to jump Hamilton at the start then Hamilton managed to find a way forward and Bottas was again left with no tools to fight back with I want to talk about first of all I mean Bottas got that great start which was terrific but really the first challenge he faced in terms of defending that was the safety car restart. This was after Max Verstappen crashed out of the race. They need to clean up the debris at turn two. And this restart, of course, was more controversial, not just for, for Bottas's restart, but uh, the field in general. Let's talk about Bottas first of all, though. Clearly very deliberately aware that Slipstream was going to be a big threat from Lewis Hamilton behind. Yeah, and I think he did, I mean, he did everything he's allowed to within the rules, you know, with that managing that restart. And um, I think if it, people were saying, why didn't he go earlier? But if he had, you're right, the slipstream for Lewis would have been great. And for the guys behind Lewis, I think, you know, you would have had a lot of cars kind of coming to that turn one. So I think up until that up until that collision behind all of those guys, the race was going really well for Bottas because he managed that pretty well. Um, but it was obviously that standing restart that followed that actually was where he, you know, he, he didn't maybe fight for that position in the way that we've kind of hoped we would see more from uh, Bottas doing. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's such a shame with him because we see these glimmers from Bottas where you're like, ah, oh, like this is the Bottas I remember from points in 2017 and 18. But unfortunately, they're, they're such small glimmers, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, to be honest with you, I'd have been fascinated to have seen how that race played out without that pileup behind and obviously the red flag which followed because it kind of took a bit of the sting out of, not not the fight at the start, but it, it would have been a different fight up in front. And I wonder if Lewis would have sat and taken the same strategy as Bottas if he'd been second as we saw later 
Bottas having to do, you know, when they when they both came in for their, their second stop later on. Well, this was the really interesting thing because for Bottas, he knew that, first of all, staying in the lead was obviously the best shot he had because while overtaking proved not as difficult as we expected, it was still a little bit on the difficult side. It was not like a slipstream race as per Monza. Lost the lead, as you said, at that first red flag standing start uh, was slipstream by Hamilton ultimately. So it did show how powerful the slipstream was down into turn one. And I feel like, you know, we have lamented Bottas a little bit this season for not showing as much fight as we would have liked or not demonstrating it at least. And I did like that when it came around the time in anticipation of this first stop, very actively said, whatever Hamilton's doing, I want the opposite of that in terms of tyre strategy. Unfortunately, he'd used up his tyres too quickly to make that happen. He had to stop before Hamilton. Hamilton could shadow him. But it is like you say, it does feel like there was a lot of strategy in this race that was poised to take place, but ultimately neutralised by the red flags. Do you think that Bottas could have overcome a a tyre offset on Hamilton, though? We know Hamilton's very good on the tyres, maybe not a great track for him on the basis of what we've seen, but would it have been enough? Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those it's one of those things, isn't it, that we... And this went back even to the Rosberg era, that most of the time Mercedes put their drivers on the same strategy, and it's so difficult mm. to beat the same car when they're when the, you know the main point of difference to your teammate sh- it is, is going to be the tires you know and if, if there's one lap difference and you're on the same compound you're not really talking about a huge difference there at all you know and I, I it would have been interesting if Bottas could have stayed with him stayed in DRS like you said there's that big slipstream down to turn one that might have made it interesting late on but they were both on the same tires at the end you know when it was a sprint to the finish and um Bottas just seemed to he seemed to struggle at those starts which was funny because he nailed the first start and then it was the, the two after that that got him so it would have been nice to have seen a moment where Bottas had to pass Hamilton on track if if, if they'd been that way around because we haven't seen Bottas do that before from memory anyway mm-hmm. and that might have been something where you know I think Lewis is clearly going to win the championship this year but it's these little moments that hopefully when he assesses 2020 at the end of the year going into 2021 a moment like that if it got past him you know maybe that's the boost he needs just to come out fighting a bit stronger next year but um but yeah what, i mean what did you make of, of bottas i was pretty underwhelmed by it but i saw some people kind of defending this as one of his stronger performances at points but i suppose that's the key isn't it that's the key word is at points it's never mm. the whole race yeah or even the key word even there can be stronger but not necessarily enough like he was very close mm. i would argue he was probably on hamilton's level this weekend like there wasn't very much to yeah. differentiate them. I think that's, that's very fair. Yeah, that's that's really fair. Hamilton. This wasn't a race where it's like, oh my god, like Hamilton yeah. was just in a different league this weekend. He just was quicker than his teammate. And Hamilton never really, with the exception of the end of this first stint on mediums, when the tyres looked to me that they were going off anyway. And in fact, Mercedes said, I think it was the, the front left, I suppose, that had essentially zero tread left on it when they took them off. With the exception of those last few laps, was pretty close to Hamilton. Even in the last stint, okay, the gap. Came in and out, but was pretty close. It was as close as you can get probably in equal machinery on the same tyres. But, and this is why I think there's a bit of a microcosm for Bottas, is that he sort of did, with the exception of those two restarts, and I do want to talk about the second one in a second, because a couple of other drivers had some opinions on that. But with the exception of those restarts, kind of was as good as he can be expected to be. Like, was right there on the level of the guy who's the you know going to be the seven-time champion, arguably could have had pole because Hamilton didn't improve on his second lap but for the yellow flag. Got the start right. Got the restart right. How often do we get more than one start from the grid in the race? Like, this should have... I'm sure Bottas went home thinking, man, 
I did everything in this race and somehow couldn't come away with a win. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's like, um, well, they might, as you say, he's got to get used to three for Sochi yeah. if, we're, if we're following the trend. Um, the one thing I'd say on that, I do agree, actually. I think that the majority of things Bottas did were, were completely, you know, standard. You mm. can't criticise too much. The one thing that is frustrating is on that, re- the, on that restart that Lewis got by him, obviously he had that good slipstream down to turn one, used the outside line really well. But whenever Bottas is in those situations, he's, he kind of, it's almost, it looks a lot like he kind of meekly mm. let the other driver through. And it's, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because when you say a driver should fight, I'm not saying he should swerve over into his teammate and take him out. But you want to see, you know, you see Lewis, like, even, so, you know, time and time again, Lewis will squeeze the guy as far to the left as possible. And, you know, he got caught out doing that with Albon in Austria. Mm. But that is kind of what... I think that's what you have to do sometimes is put a driver in a situation where you say like, look, if you want this move to happen, you're going to have to pull off the best overtaking move of your life because I'm giving you just enough space to work with. It doesn't always work, but that was the one thing that kind of, I was just, I left me wanting a bit more with Bottas. Like, come on, man, like just, just fight. Yeah. Just do anything here. You know, if, if you have to make contact, like you've got a, you've got a contract for next year. I'm not saying put him into the wall, but just have, you know, and, and I think Toto Wolf would be, upset with that but he also understands how racists think mm-hmm. you know he knows the p- position Bottas is in so if there was any criticism I had of Bottas it would be that we just didn't really see that fight from him which you just have to have especially when it's Lewis you know if, if, if it was any other teammate maybe you could get away with doing that but you're talking about a guy who is going to retire comfortably as the most successful driver in F1 history you know you got to you, yeah. you've got to take the fight to him so for me that was the that was the thing that kind of stood out I guess and I guess it's the from looking outside, we can all see, obviously, that this is Hamilton's championship to lose doesn't even do it enough justice at this point with 55 points between them. But it's sort of like, for us, it should be, and I feel like for Valtteri as well, it should be clear to say you have pretty much nothing to lose at this point. I'm sure he's worried by getting his elbow out well, you know, another DNF or low score is only going to apply more pressure. But realistically, he's not going to get this title by playing percentages at this point. He's got to really go out for it. And I feel like he's has perhaps doesn't mentally transition to that, as you sort of say, by not... I mean, there's only so much he could have done, but he didn't, you know, by the attitude in the car didn't really give the impression the way he was driving in that first turn that he was thinking like that. He was really just thinking, okay, Hamilton's over here. Let's not make contact. I'll try and get him later. And then, of course, he's not going to. And that's a bit frustrating. Yeah, and if you think back to Rosberg, the way Rosberg... I know that in 2016, Lewis had some issues with reliability and stuff like that, but you park those to one side. One thing Rosberg was able to do after those first two years of being beaten was he was able to get into Lewis's head a little bit. Mm. You know, And you could see that clearly that year, that Lewis was frustrated by the fact that sometimes he just couldn't beat Rosberg. You know, they, they, they collided at some places, you know, Austria that year being one where, and, 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 you know, and Spain that year as well, you know, and we can debate over and over again, who was to blame for those incidents, but putting hit, putting Rosberg, putting himself in those positions clearly frustrated Lewis because it meant that it wasn't all going Lewis's way. And it was almost like a, well, look, if we're going to fight on track, this is going to happen. So this is what you're going to have to do to win sometimes. And I think that that is, I think Lewis, it, you can tell he's very comfortable in that fight. You know, he, he's very respectful of Bottas's speed, but there's also, when he's talking, you don't hear that kind of the same way he would speak about Rosberg, where it was, as soon as Lewis starts putting an opponent down, you know he, he's worried about them. Yeah. That's my that's my kind of feeling on it. And he, he's always very complimentary of Bottas, which to me makes me think, you know, that in his head, he's like, all right, well, he's not a threat. Mm. Whereas he wouldn't, you know, he's not that complimentary about Max. He's like, yeah, Max drove all right today. <laughs> you know, Max could have finished like 40 laps ahead of everyone. And Max, he'll be like, yeah, that was yeah. all right, you know whatever you know and that's when you know you're like okay this guy you know 
Max is that you know occupies a bit of Lewis's head. You know he's he's in there a little bit, and Bottas I just don't think is. Yeah, I feel like it's a very good call. I I think I remember start of last season it must have been when Valtteri was having quite a good start to the year. That for one race, I'm struggling to remember which it was. I Lewis stopped referring to him by name, and for a moment I was like, oh, maybe this is on, and then it wasn't on in the end. He won the title. But I remember that that was that was Baku last year because I remember right. being there and. Um, yeah, and I remember because we were talking about that. We were like, "Why has, has he just forgotten Valtteri's name?" Like, what, like he was like, he was like, "I um, I I lost to my teammate today." It's like, dude, he's been your teammate for like, three seasons now. Like, what, what's going on? You haven't forgotten his name. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. So it's little things like that that I think if he was mentally preparing himself for a fight mm-hmm. at that point, probably, and he's like, "This guy's not my friend or my team." You know, he's he's yeah. my rival now. Mm. And we haven't seen that since. So, but yeah, it's, it's good memory. That's just jogged it in my head. I remember laughing at that at the time. <laughs> so ultimately, in this race, there was not so many strategic tools of Valtteri Bottas to get past. Once he burned through those tires quicker than Hamilton, that was really the only stop window we had. Perhaps there would have been a second one, although they did switch to the hard tire. But ultimately, that last red flag meant it was broken up fairly evenly. It was a bit of a sprint race to the finish. Terrible second restart for Bottas as well lost a place to Ricardo got it back pretty quickly but a terrible start and this is where I want to sort of look at some of the other cars on the grid because talking about red rest- uh, red flag restarts more generally Vettel had some words after this he doesn't he doesn't like red flag standing restarts and perhaps it's because he didn't have a great start himself on the second grid but he did note that it there is luck involved there's always luck involved in racing I suppose but by the time you get late in a race, if you're starting on the dirty side of the grid, normally there's marbles there. There might even be a little bit of debris there. Obviously, we saw that big crash on the start, finish straight, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, and I can kind of understand that. And if you look at the replay, all the drivers who did start on the dirty side, let's say from position two and behind, including Valtteri Bottas, did have fairly poor starts. Alex Albon as well lost a place to Sergio Perez, I think it was. Uh, there is something in that, I guess, if we want to be not only kind to just Bottas, but some of the, the poor starters from that second red flag. Yeah, and that and that is kind of the ra- random element that it throws in. And I know that this is this is actually kind of, it's, I, I suppose it's part of a wider debate in F1, isn't it? There was talk, a lot of talk about reverse grid mm. races to set the grid, etc., ahead of this season. And one quote actually ahead of this weekend was Toto Wolff saying, this, you know, this isn't professional wrestling. It's not WWE. It can't be gimmicky. It can't be random and that if you were to criticize standing restarts that would be the main thing i think that you would you would look at you would say that you know it, it just so happens you know if you're if you're one three five seven whatever on the standings you're going to get a better a better start so i don't know if there's a way to really address that either because i suppose that some circuits are going to be a lot worse than others but i actually really like the drama of a standing restart there's something about it that compared to a rolling start as we get in formula one where they're all in single file there's just a bit more drama to it because I suppose it's much easier to mess up a start. Um, and, and, and like you say, as, as we saw, Bottas dropped behind Ricciardo straight away. We had Albon having a bad start. You kind of get, it mixes things up a little bit rather than a safety car restart mm-hmm. where usually, especially at the front, it's very rare that you see kind of one driver putting the leader under pressure because the leader's been able to dictate that pace and start when he wants to. So I kind of get that, but I think you, I think what you said kind of alludes to it. If I think if Vettel had been starting first or second, he would have been perfectly happy with a standing restart. The fact he was starting in the middle of the pack probably kind of coloured his opinion. It was funny. Did you see that video where they finished and he was like, "So what is this? Is there another restart now?" Or what? Like, <laughs> like joking with his pit wall. So uh, yeah, you could tell he was clearly not the happiest with it. But 
on that with Vettel, that restart is what got him that point because he mm. admitted afterwards that if it hadn't been for that restart, Russell would have finished ahead of him. But again, Russell, I think it put Russell on the dirty side of the grid. He got a bad start. Yes. And then ended up obviously finishing behind, agonizingly, just behind Vettel. I think it was two seconds behind, which would have been his first championship point, of course. And this, so yeah. it's funny how, that, funny how that worked out. This is the other interesting thing about these red flag restarts. And this had a, a notable impact, as you said, on the race in terms of the final points, was that there's also the rule that you're allowed to unlap yourself before these standing restarts. And that was the case with Kimi Raikkonen and Romain Grosjean. And if you want to compare their starts to not only George Russell, but also both Ferrari drivers... Much better. Both of them had much better starts. Even Grosjean, whose car was mostly missing, as I understand it, from damage, because he somehow emerged unscathed from both massive accidents uh, at the first part of this race. Uh, they'd been able to do these laps to unlap themselves. As a result, had warmer tyres, the car had been brought up to temperature, as opposed to Russell, Vettel and Leclerc, who weren't able to do that. And lo and behold had much better starts. Yeah, it was funny, wasn't it? Grosjean seemingly had this indestructible car <laughs> at his disposal. And so did Kimi. Like, Kimi was definitely yeah. someone who shouldn't have been still in the race at the start because he was definitely involved <laughs> in that first incident. Um, yeah, the unlapping rule is interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure at some point that's going to be controversial if it impacts the championship in some way or if it, you know, if it brings people into races who were super slow, but... I don't think there's ever going to be a perfect solution to it. Um, maybe, maybe if you're lapped, you get, you know, you, you can start halfway around the circuit or something. So you, you know, you're kind of, you've got a chance to catch back up, but you're not, you're not right with the leaders. You know, you're still punished for being a lap down. Um, I don't know how they would even, I don't know even how you'd go about doing that if you have to put like a few little grid slots halfway around just in case. But, uh, but yeah, um, Kimmy, uh, yeah, Kimmy did well to get back into the. Um, into the points but it was on the back of that on the back of that rule but he did give my favorite radio message of the entire race which was uh when he had that penalty for uh an infringement in the pit lane and his radio messages with Alfa Romeo are hilarious because yeah. he will ask them a question and they will like dance around the issue and he's always just like tell me tell me what I've asked you because you obviously we, we know Kimmy doesn't doesn't care for anything else yeah. and it's just for what? Was his kind of response. And I've seen so many memes of that today. Uh, it's absolutely genius. He's good. He is good value. Continues to be good value in Alfa Romeo. Yeah. Uh, surviving accidents, doing just an absolutely wonderful job. Just before we get to the battle for the podium, which is where there was actually some strategy that played out in close to terms of what we expected this race to deliver, let us talk briefly about Ferrari, because they only probably deserve a brief mention, albeit it was their thousandth Grand Prix, but their name's in the title, so that's enough mention for them, really. They managed to scrape some points from this race. Uh... For a time, it looked like they might have been the only two finishes of this race that wouldn't score points, given only 12 people reached the checkered flag. Uh, in the end, they did manage to get 10th with Vettel, 8th uh, with Leclerc. He only just got to 8th, though, because Raikkonen had to serve a penalty. For what? It was for entering the pit lane incorrectly. That's what it was for. Uh, otherwise, it would have been 9th and 10th for them. Uh, they... I mean, we've criticised Ferrari in the last couple of rounds, I guess, because their strategy has been extremely poor. In fact, I don't even think they've known what their strategy is at certain races. The drivers have been dictating it from the cockpit because I think Vettel in particular has just had enough at this point of his Ferrari career. Uh, we sort of got a sense of that again in this race. Leclerc used every tyre between the two red flags, despite some drivers attempting to make no stops in this period of time or making just one stop. 
They did make a single good call, though, that did rescue some points from this race, and that was not to stop behind the safety car uh, for Lance Stroll's big crash. I guess if we want to give them the benefit here, seeing that it was probably going to be a red flag because the car was on fire, uh, one moment, one shining moment from Ferrari's 1000th Grand Prix that I guess we can say they did a good job. Yeah, because Leclerc did climb the order for that, didn't he? Yes. And um, <clears throat> I was just looking at the Pirelli map here and... You're right. Um, Leclerc was the earliest person to stop after the restart. So he stopped on lap 21 uh, quite a lot earlier than anyone else stopped, you know. So I think at one point they said, do you want to go on to plan C? I always love it because they've got all these plans, haven't they? It's always plan A, plan B, plan C. And um, he was like, do you want to do plan C? And he was like, well, yeah, we're so slow. Like, like, let's just, let's just, let's just do something, you know. Um, Yeah, their radio messages are fascinating because it's almost like they're like, hey, uh, so what do you want to do now? (laughs) You know, whereas you hear other teams, they're like saying, this is what we're going to do. And the driver will say, okay, cool. Yeah, I agree. Because that's what we discussed this morning. <laughs> Ferrari, I'd love to be, I'd love, I'd love if, if you know, if Netflix does, you, you know, gets, continues to get access with Ferrari. That's what they need to do. It's like, don't focus on Ferrari on track. I want to see their t- their pre, their pre-race briefing and how they actually <laughs> come up with these strategies. But, um, but yeah, you're right. I think that was, that was quite interesting. Because I think when, when you saw the severity of that crash, it was like, well, clearly that is not going to be re- uh, remedied anytime soon the car was I mean, the car was almost twisted round but also that barrier was completely destroyed mm-hmm. so um it was pretty yeah and you're right that they, they were the, the only person at that point that didn't stop straight away uh, under that so um yeah i think that it let's give them some credit it was their thousandth race so we can that's probably their their, their strategy call of the year to get them eighth place <laughs> it did it got them eight. they rose them from 11th to 8th uh, at the time, he did lose positions yeah. off the line, but ultimately recovered eighth. So some points for Ferrari. Good on him. Why not? They had a go and it delivered. It was weird for me because I know it was their thousandth race, but they've been so underwhelming this year that it didn't really feel like in a other like you say the name was in the title. But other than that, it it didn't really seem. And they had the Burgundy liv- uh, livery, obviously, but it just felt like another race to me, which was a shame. And it kind of mm-hmm. shows you where they're at. Louis Camilleri said, the CEO of Ferrari said they're in a hole right now, which I think everyone would agree with. So um, if anything, this this race seemed like it's like they're at the bottom of this kind of trough and they need to mm. kind of get out of it. And it would be quite fitting if the if this is the lowest point, you know, and they can kind of almost the next chapter is the best chapter. But yeah, a lot a lot of things need to improve. I keep wondering what Carlos Sainz thinks every time he gets home and <laughs> watches the highlights. He must be like, oh man, oh, it's not I'm good. not done. I've not done well here. Yeah. <laughs> I do like just on the uh, radio calls of Ferrari, there's always a plan B or a C. They've gotten quite deep into the letters as well at previous races, <laughs> yeah. haven't they? I think they've gone to F. Yeah. Just a lot just to remember. Uh, but I did like in this, in this race, it was at one point where Norris, who was stuck and ultimately couldn't pass Sergio Perez, uh, was asked, would you like to undercut Perez? And he said, yes, let's undercut Perez and tried it and it <laughs> yeah, didn't work. Yeah. But it's like, there's no need for these codes. Yeah, yeah. McLaren could have like, do you want plan 1.5A? And it's like, <laughs> what is that? It, like, just, yeah, yeah. I, that's a really good point, actually. Like, very, very simple. It was just like, it was just so matter of fact. And I do wonder yeah. if sometimes for, I, I, I imagine like, you know, Buzz Lightyear when he has all those things written <laughs> under his arm on that, you know, or, or an NFL quarterback have that thing where yeah. you put it up. Like, are they, are they looking under there like, mm, yes, we'll, uh, <laughs> This is perfect for Plan C, as we discussed yesterday. <laughs> and yeah, and you don't Mercedes don't do the same thing. Theirs is very matter of fact. You know, James Vowles will kind of lay those things out very, very straightforward for them. So I think that that is. I think there's 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 a lot to that. I think that Ferrari there's obviously a lot of problems, but operationally they don't seem to function anywhere near 
the cars they're trying to beat on track. I think that's a fair assessment, certainly from what we've seen this season. Uh, let's finally talk about the battle for the podium where we saw what was a really interesting three-way fight pretty much right up until that red flag between Alex Albon, Daniel Ricciardo and Lance Stroll. Stroll had the early advantage after Albon had a pretty poor second start. Uh, that is the start after the first red flag. Uh, it does get a bit confusing, keeping track of all of the restarts of this race. Uh, Ricardo undercut him, though, and I thought it was interesting that at this point in the race, Racing Point gave up track position to try and build, a, I guess, a little bit of a tyre offset to Ricardo while keeping Albon behind. They stopped just as Albon got into undercut windows, so didn't allow the undercut to happen with him. And they all got pretty close towards the end of that middle part of the race. You'd have to say Albon waited until lap 32 to stop, whereas Ricardo stopped on 27 and Stroll on 30. You'd think he probably had the box seat at that point. He had the better tyre life and potentially, although it's impossible to say this, could have gone for a long shot towards the end of the race, do you think? Yeah, I think his strategy was the most interesting. What was fascinating there was the presence of Stroll between him and Ricardo, mm -hmm. And I think that would have ultimately been really interesting at the end of that race because... The racing point versus the Red Bull is a much more difficult fight for Albon than against the Renault, just in terms of sheer engine power. So <clears throat> while he might have had that advantage late on, I think that Stroll actually crashing out probably obviously made that much, much easier for Albon. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it, that, that was the shame about that second red flag was that that fight was literally a three-way fight and you couldn't call it. And I think everybody was getting, was was googling the nearest tattoo parlor to Magello for <laughs> Cyril Beatball's little bet with uh, Ricardo. But um, I think as soon as that as soon as that, they, they, they obviously all got the chance to switch to soft tyres. And that was a, a bit of a shame because I think that you're right. I think I, I would have backed Albon at the end of that situation because he would have had the car, he would have had the tyre advantage. But there still would have been, there would have been a difference. You know, Ricardo would have been managing his tyres as well. When you put them both on the same tyre, I think it kind of took away any, any difference, any mm -hmm. kind of random element into that fight. So... Um, yeah, a, a kind of a shame in a way that it played out that way, but I'm glad that we got kind of Albon passing somebody on track for his first podium because I felt like he needed that result and um, he kind of got it. I think Horner said like you got it the hard way. He would have had to get it the hard way either way. He would have had to pass at least one car on track, probably two. But uh, what, how, how do you how do you think it would have played out if that if that second red flag hadn't come out? Because I've, I've I've been trying to work that out today and I can't quite picture it in my head if Albon gets gets close enough. It's really difficult to know because we didn't get any really long stints on the medium tyre, let's say. We know Bottas's tyres sort of lasted maybe 22, 23 laps, but he was sort of following Hamilton very closely, wasn't really thinking about the management of it so much, whereas Hamilton seemed to say his tyres were fine. So it's hard to know how much life was in those mediums. I know Ricardo was saying, and admittedly his medium stint was much shorter because of that red flag, that he felt there was a lot of life left in those tyres, and none of them seemed to have any issues with the tyres up to that point. So it would have been interesting to see, I suspect Albon probably would have attempted to not make another stop given he'd gone to lap 32. Then perhaps Ricardo would have gambled, depending on what the gaps in the field was like. That's normally the dictating situation right but if he'd made another stop uh, another stop he presumably would have been quite a lot faster towards the end of the race would have been again probably quite a close finish but i think like you say difficult to call without lance stroll in that equation to maybe change things up i know ricardo was pretty confident he felt like he had it in the bag but i think quite difficult to know considering how much of the end of the race we ultimately missed because of that red flag yeah and that and, and stroll would have been key in that because i think he would have caught he would have caught Ricardo. Albon would have caught mm. Stroll, and then you know th those three 
we saw two two cars fighting into turn one a couple of times in the support series we saw a lot of three wide you know mm. going down into turn one so i wonder how how that would have played out i mean uh it would have somebody would have had to have, you know kind of a an all or nothing kind of move mm-hmm. for that position so it's a shame we didn't get that. And I think interesting too, this might have been another opportunity to talk about Formula One's topic of the month, which is engine <laughs> modes. But uh, looking at the speeds towards the end of that stint before the red flag, Ricardo was the fastest in a straight line. It's hard to know if that was the maximum speed valve one because he was behind Stroll at that point. But in a straight line, certainly Ricardo did seem to have Stroll covered. So that potentially could have been decisive. We know the slipstream was pretty key to trying to get a move into turn one. Maybe that was enough and that's why he was so confident. So there would have been a lot of factors. I mean, three different cars that have different strengths and weaknesses uh, at different points of tyre life. I mean, that's sort of the ideal situation for an interesting race. And it is a bit of a shame that strategically we were kind of robbed of that. Yeah, and 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 three different teams is is kind of something we don't always see, is it? You know, all, all fighting for the same piece mm. of road. So it's, it's it's it shows you how tantalizingly close that is for Formula One to achieve across the board that we could have that a bit further down from the front. The problem is that those three guys were fighting for third. Um, the person, the big person we haven't spoken about here, obviously, is Max, who yes. whose race race lasted maybe what twenty seconds or whatever. Had he been in the race, this would have been a fight for fourth position because Max mm-hmm. would have been mixing it with the Mercedes guys. And it's a shame we didn't actually see what Max could have done in the race. Just while we're kind of while we're talking about things that things that we didn't see. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, the more the more we talk about it now, the more I'm like, damn, I wish we'd I wish we'd seen Stroll stay in the race. And it's interesting for Stroll. It seemed like after that race, it seemed like he, he I think he's he sees these last two races as big opportunities that got mm-hmm. away. Monza, he probably should have won that race. This, I think he was thinking afterwards, like we should have had a podium here. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I think that his reaction says it all. That you know he he felt he would have been right in that fight. But you're right about the Renault. Like it you know, it does have that advantage that we haven't always been able to say about Renault. Uh, at points that it's stronger than another car in any part of the circuit. So the fact, the fact, the fact that we can say that is encouraging for them. Yeah, and as a final note, actually, on things uh, that we regrettably didn't see in this race, interesting and exciting though it was, is that this is the first time, I think since Al- Alex Albon joined Red Bull Racing, that we had Mercedes 1-2, Red Bull 3-4 on the grid. Uh, both teams were set up to two-stop, but potentially one-stop. I think there would have been some really interesting uh, mind games between these two teams, playing different strategies, deploying someone as a first and second driver. Fascinating too, considering that Bottas had the better start. Would Hamilton have been deployed in effectively the rear gunner role for this race? I can't think of the last time we would have seen that. There's a lot that could have happened in this race had that first lap not taken place. Yeah, 100%. And, And on Albon being fourth, that was his joint best qualifying of the year. And one thing that Red Bull struggled with this season is exactly that, is that he's been so far back they've effectively had one car in a fight against two other cars and like you rightly say Albon being there suddenly changes the whole complexion of that fight because they can't just cover Max they've got to cover two cars and, and Red Bull can play around with it so in a way again that's you know in an alternate universe that that you know Max carried on that race Albon didn't have the best start again so that's that's something that might have changed that out in front but him being that far up the grid I think would have been massively helpful for Red Bull when they were kind of formulating their strategies because they would have hoped like okay if Albon's here he allows us to put these cars under more pressure than we might have done otherwise yeah a race of what ifs as exciting as this race was as interesting as Mugello proved for its first F1 Grand Prix and possibly but maybe hopefully not its last 
There was a lot that we didn't see in this race. I guess we'll just have to save it all up for what will be a cracking Russian Grand Prix in a couple of weeks' time. Nate, a pleasure as always to talk about Formula One with you. Thanks, mate. Yeah, lo- love coming on. I'm glad you didn't invite me on for the Sochi show. <laughs> <laughs> that was ESPN's Nate Saunders. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favorite podcast app plus all of your social media channels and if you like what you've heard we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other f1 fans find the show my name's michael Amanato. you can look me up on twitter at michael Amanato. the strategy report is a beer mogul podcast and i'll catch you next week for a preview of the russian grand prix